I often do a substitution that's really obvious, uh, in my opinion, of like uh, late Roman paganism with like liberalism and Christianity, and Christianity as like wokeism or some like radical leftist ideology, right? Uh, and so I will actually like it's about the fourth century. I seem pretty anti-Christian actually. She was following me on Twitter. She unfollowed me after a bunch of pro-pagan tweets. She had no idea what I was talking about. People say Arabic is very uh, metaphorical and indirect, and that this carries over to how Arabs sometimes speak in English. Some of the uh, extreme pronouncements, death or this will be the end of you and all this stuff. Like basically, if as much death occurred, uh, co co consonant with their rhetoric, like nobody would be alive. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Razib Khan, one of my favorite geneticists on Twitter and Substack. You'll see exactly what I mean when we get to the show, but he's one of the people who's excellent at interweaving both the history and the science of genetic populations. We discuss the role of anonymous accounts, crimes lost to history, infanticide, versions of birth control throughout history, scientific models, and Straussian readings of both contemporary and older writers. If you'd like to support the show, the best way you can do so is to let a friend know, either in person or online. The odds are, if you have a friend who has a similar interest, who has similar habits as you, then not only will you help us out, but you'll help a friend find something interesting and enjoyable. Without further ado, here's Razib Khan. Anonymous accounts, overrated or underrated? Uh, I I think they're overrated. Uh, it's I have mixed feelings, but overrated, def of that. Right, and why? And why is that? Because uh, you know, you have to have a, anonymous accounts are useful if you have something to say that you can't say because you're a dissident and there are serious issues with you saying it. So obviously, you know, the example that I gave you offline. Because the example I usually use is if you're a dissident in Iran, okay, I, I get why you're an anon. Uh, it could be milder than that. Like, let's say you're in the CIA and there's really shady things happening and you want to leak it. Okay, so there are numerous examples that I could give that it's justified to use an anonymous account. But 99.9% of the time, it's just people being assholes on the internet. Uh, they don't want to use their real name and they want to be total dicks and uh, I know a lot of people actually who have very different anonymous personas and they're different because they just have no restraint in how they behave. I have friends who are anonymous and I block them and then they're like, hey, I block you blocked me. Uh, and I was like, oh, I didn't know that was you. I thought you were just some asshole on the Internet. And they're like, well, I blocked <laughs> me. And I was like, no, you were an asshole on the Internet. That's obviously your Internet persona. And uh because like I've, everything that I've said, uh, like you're not going to find an Anon account with me. Everything that I've said on the internet, I've said with my own real name. I've been an asshole on the internet with my own real name. You know, and It just changes people's behavior. Uh, they have like no restraints uh, and you know because they don't have the self-control to not go all in to whatever weird thing that they want to say. A lot of it's posturing and performance. A lot of it's LARPing, live-action role-playing. Uh, so there's just a lot of crap to deal with. So I'm not a big consumer of anon content uh, i don't think anons are geniuses most of the time almost any time uh and even when it is supposedly a dissident iran 
The problem is you don't know who they are. They could be making it up. So uh, on the whole, I'm not bullish, but there are exceptions. And so I obviously think it should be allowed. Yeah, like I think McLuhan was right. that There's a cultural component or a kind of second order component when you change the rules of the game if someone is anon there's they're going to behave differently than if they were you know if they were posting under their real name and yeah i I think i'm probably still a bit more pro anon than you but i do think you know there's a lot of anons who could just be saying the same thing in person and i think it would actually be better for them like like people kind of look at people kind of obsess over the negatives like it's true you know like some people are canceled some like perfectly normal people like not even remotely close to any kind of political power you know like yeah left-wing reporters will still go after them but i think that people also underrate the upsides like people underrate people are just you know there's negativity bias they underrate you know the friends you made along the way i think that's very much my story right like i started i actually did start out posting anon uh and then like within like a few months i just decided like wait no this this just doesn't make sense this just doesn't make sense and you know I can attribute in part my like current job to Twitter, um, to, to to posting. I can, you know, I, I know many people, many such cases. People people underrate the positive relationships, the the kind of human connection that I don't think I don't know. Like, are there are there anons who who have gotten kind of job offers or have gotten you know to meet people IRL? Um, yeah, definitely. But I think that once you have a human face to it, it's different. It's more positive. You, you really you yeah. really feel like you can be friends with these people. Yeah, so I would, uh, you know, that's true. And then there's also, like, pseudos, which are, you know, there's people you can figure out who they are. For example, Rude. He's not an Anon, but he goes by Rude online. That's enough of a barrier that I think it allows him to feel he can be edgy. So there's that angle that's going on. So, like, with me, my full name is there in the handle, so I'm very identifiable. Not everyone's that extreme. Uh, The second issue is uh, most people are not that important, especially the younger generation. uh, Candidly, they're pussies. Uh, They're terrified that they're going to get canceled, and so they are like total assholes under the Anon because they channel all of that into, into, you know, all all of their, like, uh, disagreeability they channel into their Anon. But in real life, they're always terrified of getting canceled by random people. Uh, so, oh yes, this personality type I cannot stand. Yeah, yeah. This is no. This is, I. I can't. Uh, I have to tolerate it because that's just most young people. To be honest, most young males that I interact with are total cowards. Uh, but they also have like very aggressive anon personalities. You know. Oh, I, I completely, I completely agree. So this I, is I think, very widespread. Yeah, and I saw. So I, I personally like. I'm not a big fan of that bifurcation. I'm very similar. Uh, online in real life. I'm just very aggressive in real life, and I'm very aggressive online. There's really not that much difference. Well, I, I think I'm a little bit... I, I am a little bit more uh, forbearing in real life because these are people I know, whereas on the internet, I have enough followers that I have a lot of crap coming at me, and so uh, I, I really do hate a lot of my followers. That's not a, a joke. So <laughs> I, do, I do hate them. Right. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. For for me, for me, if anything, I think I'm much more aggressive in real life. Or not aggressive, but like I will I will push much further and try to like disagree. Whereas I just don't have the motivation for it online. Or like on podcasts, I'll also like push much fur- further. I'll get into the disagreement. 
But if someone, you know, says I'm wrong about everything on Twitter, I'm like, okay. Um, I, I don't really, I, like, like I don't, I don't really get the kind of Twitter theatrics. And I know, like, some people don't con- consider it theatrics. I'm just giving, like, my, my opinion. But, like, you know, you go on Twitter, you know, so- someone replies to you, says, like, I'm completely wrong, or, or like, says, like, you're, you're completely wrong about everything, you know, like, like, what's the, what's the extender there? How, how do you, like, like, how do you pull, like, useful information out of this person? Whereas with, like, podcasts, I, I do think I can, like, I, I can press, I can get to something useful, I can maybe pull punches if necessary, right? It, it just seems much more, it just seems a much more kind of high throughput way of communication. And, and so maybe, like, that's the reason, maybe that's the reason most people behave in the opposite way, right? They, they want to, like, they, they want to express their, their their anger in like a low throughput environment. So if if someone says you know like if someone gives an angry tweet and then someone else responds something like could you could you elaborate on that? Why exactly do you think I'm I'm wrong? They they don't have to be put into that situation where they're where where they actually have to explain themselves. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so you know when I say I'm aggressive, it's if someone comes at me, especially if they're a real name person, I will come back at them. But a lot of your, a lot of my replies, a lot of my engagement is not uh, aimed at the person itself. They're just kind of a prop. And so, if you expose it, you have an audience. And so sometimes it's useful, you know, like look, this is how this person is stupid. This is how you can learn. So that's you know extreme like sketch of sometimes what happens, you know. Uh, but you know, a lot of times, yes, you you just do have to ignore and block and uh, and whatnot. And also, it's like I will. If you reply to me and your comment is just kind of like stupid and it wasted like a second of my life, like try to figure it out, I'll block you. So that's just, I've just told people that don't reply to me unless you have high signal. Cause if I see it and like, I don't see a lot of my replies because they're under the whatever. So that's fair. But if you're a, if you're a person where I follow you back and you reply at me and it's a stupid comment that you didn't put much thought into, I might just block you. And people are like, oh, that's pretty harsh. And I'm like, well, you know, attention is finite. You know? If you don't if you don't want like to see my stuff, you just unfollow me, you know. But uh if you're replying at me, that's a very aggressive thing to do. I actually think about that myself when I reply to other people. Like I know I'm taking a risk sometimes, you know, and it's that's how it is. Right, right. I'm I'm actually like I'm probably more extreme with regards to blocking. I will just, you know I will block like not even for rudeness, but just for like Comments that I think don't yeah. contribute anything. Yeah, I, if, they're, I, if, they're, if they're below the line, if they're below the line. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right? I, I just think, like, is this, like, better or worse than, like, the marginal next Twitter, next tweet in my feed? And if it's worse, then I'll just block. Um, so, so there's probably, like, a lot of people who have been, like, you know, quote-unquote unfairly blocked by me. Like, like they didn't, like, I don't, I don't have any kind of, like, dislike to them in any way. It's just... You know, you you made a boring tweet. I'm sorry, <laughs> or like you consistently make boring tweets. I don't know that that's that's the kind of motivation for me. It's just you know, it's just a filtering mechanism. So so, sure. so I think I largely agree with you. Well, you know, Anyways, I mean, great, okay. great 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 minds think alike. <laughs> yeah yeah okay so so let's get into the actual let's get into the actual substance. I think you said something on a different podcast about kind of infanticide as an early birth control and like sudden in infant death syndrome. Can you can you kind of elaborate on that for the audience? 
I I don't recall, but I probably have, and it would make sense why I would say that. So I mean, you know, like. So I recently I re- read the ancient Egyptians, uh, the Greeks, used to make fun of them because they were known to not commit infanticide. Uh, and the, the Greeks actually made fun of them and thought that they were weird and bizarre because uh, they were the only ancient people that were known uh, to not have committed infanticide. Now, obviously, we know that the Jews, the Hebrews, uh, they did not commit infanticide either, uh, but they were very minor people at the time, and we don't really know... To be, to be candid, we don't really know if they were Jews or Canaanites, you know, like 750 BC, you know, so we don't know exactly the details of their practices then. Later on, by the time of uh, the Persian Empire, their practices were more similar to what we know of, kind of in the light of history. But we know very early on that the Egyptians were, quote, pro-life. Uh, they were very, very uh, uh, against infanticide and stuff like that. And so I'm bringing this up because they were weird. Uh uh, they were exceptions. In most societies, uh, to engage in population control, uh, infanticide was acceptable. Um, and that was the only way that they knew how to do uh, very, very obviously um, 100% birth control, right? Because they, they, obviously there are like traditional societies that have special herbs and all these other things that will reduce your probability, but nothing is guaranteed. Infanticide is guaranteed. And so in a lot of societies, you know, children are not, uh, offspring are not given names until a certain age. And we know all of this stuff. They are not fully persons until a given time. And I think that this reflects the reality that uh, there is a trial period of whether, you know, the child is uh, is going to become part of the community. Now, there are societies like, so my friend Manvir Singh wrote a piece on the Aceh, we're a very egalitarian society. But it turns out that uh, if a par- if the parents die, uh, usually this is the mother, I guess. Uh, if the parents, if the mother dies uh, in Ache society, they usually just kill the children uh, as a matter of course, uh, because you know it's a very egalitarian society. But everyone needs to provide for themselves, uh, and like kind of like put into the kitty. And a child is a ne- deficit, and so they would automatically kill the children, right? And so this is uh, just a very common thing in many societies. And our modern norm of not doing infanticide uh, is is new. It, just like uh, the modern norm of not having shadow slavery is relatively new. That doesn't mean that uh, there is a variation between populations in terms of the frequency, uh, in terms of the severity, uh, but just like there's variation of population, variation between populations in terms of the magnitude and the extent of slavery. So, for example, uh, the ancient Chinese were not abolitionists, but uh, slavery was seen as a, uh, you know, it was a social negative, and there are edicts of like how to minimize the number of slaves. It's just like not a good look uh, if your empire has a lot of slaves. It's a really bad sign of public order and governance. But they weren't abolitionists, right? And then you had, obviously, the Greco-Romans for whom slavery is constitutive uh, to the way they understand how society should function in terms of production um, and also as consumption goods. Uh, To a lesser extent, uh, Islam is like that too, even though uh, there was modification of slavery um, in Islam, uh, you know, it was just understood that you would have slaves uh, and they were predominantly consumption goods uh, for rich people, right? Right. 
So the, the reason why I'm curious about infanticide specifically is that it seems like something that would provide or that would create a very clear kind of uh, genetic marker. It is assuming that it's not like random, right? Assuming that it's actually selecting for something. Uh, is that the case? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would assume so. I mean, look, so for, we have to think about it mostly in forager contexts. Uh, let's assume that there's some level of mobility, which is probably true. So one of the issues uh, with foragers is they are naturally uh, they naturally control their population because uh, they have to control their population because they can only carry like one infant around, right? So they have to carry infants like on their backs, like you know we know how it looks. You can't carry like a huge number of small children in tow. They have to be able to keep up. And so traditionally what I've read is that foragers uh, engaged in weeding, extended weeding, to reduce their fertility because they needed to birth space. Sedentary agriculturalists didn't need to birth space, so there's two variations here. So when it comes to foragers, uh, infanticide is just very, very common because weeding is not perfect birth control. <clears throat> so this is just a situation where it doesn't have to do with uh, the infant's uh, physical characteristics in any way obviously. It's just if it was bad timing. So uh, obviously, I think the selection there would be minimal. On the other hand, there's other things like, uh, for example, being deaf, uh, very, very low fertility or very, very low survival rate, probably in the pre-modern era. There's basically most disabilities uh, would would result in mortality. And uh, there's huge differences in different societies based on what's preferred. So for example, uh, a la the Trivers Willers effect, it's well known that in stratified societies, uh, people in the lower classes uh, will often have higher rates of infanticide uh, for male offspring, while people in the upper classes will have a higher rates of and like you know this is inferred infanticide. You just look at the the burials and you look at the ages in the burials and you can see that many many more little girls die in upper class households whereas it's the opposite lower class households and this is basically due to hypergamy and the value of a male versus female uh, within the family so obviously there's you know that, that that's that's you know Trevor's ruler in fact it's an evolutionary thing like it's a facultative evolutionary thing kind of like understand uh, there's other things that uh, so for example I, I brought up deafness uh, probably if you were deaf not probably almost certainly uh, you would probably be killed or die very early because uh, communication is just like super important. And there wasn't sign language and other accommodations in the pre-modern era. Uh, and so you were just, you know, you were deaf, probably mute. You couldn't communicate uh, and you would definitely be a burden uh, to the, you know, imagine it was a hunter-gathering society and you can't communicate. That would just be really, really difficult to imagine that they would see you as anything beyond a burden. So probably in the pre-modern era, you know, there's selection against the genes for deafness, you know, which are recurrent mutations that happen. Uh, in the modern era, obviously, there's less selection. And in fact, there is a whole deaf community where, you know, they even want to have children that are deaf and whatnot. So that's that's shifted a lot. Right. So the, the reason why I'm curious about this is that... Actually, this might be a good tie into it. I think I'm. I'm not sure if you're involved in this company uh, in some way. I saw you retweet them a few times, but like, do you, do you know like Osram? Uh, Steve Steve Shu was on this podcast talking about this a few a few months ago. Yeah, no, so I'm I'm good friends with uh, uh the CEO uh David Middleman. That's why I retweet. <laughs> he asks. 
Right, right. So, so they basically use genetic evidence to solve cold cases. So um, either either DNA sampling or something more complex. But what's what's very, very interesting is that, and I think this ties in very much with your work, is I'm wondering, like, how, to what extent can this be used to kind of look at past, like, possibly uncovered war crimes? Sure. Right? Like, you, you can look at, you know, genocide is the most obvious example. Right. If you have a if you have a large historical genocide, you can expect that to have some kind of historical effect. Uh, uh, forced migration as well. I think you've covered you certainly covered this. Right. Maybe not forced, but like the the effect of migration flows. But like how first first of all, like I think this is an important prior. Like how much of history do you think has been lost in this way, and what percentage of that can be recovered through kind of genetic means? Yeah, so uh, you know, like I said, like I'm friends with uh, David, and I've, uh, you know, I was actually uh, involved uh, a little bit uh, in Othram very early on. Uh, so you know, I, I know the trajectory of the company. I know what they do. So basically, uh, it's forensic genomics. Uh, okay, so forensics, we all know what forensics is. If you watch CSI, then it's genomics. It's applying genomic 21st century technology. Basically, this is the same technology that used for ancient DNA. So methodologically, there's very little difference. So someone that died 100 years ago versus 10,000 years ago, some of the same issues that that happen with a 10,000-year-old subfossil will also occur with a 100-year-old subfossil, partly because the degradation of DNA has, like, a, I think, exponential decay. Uh, that's a distribution. And so a lot of the things will happen in the first 100 years, and then, you know, other things in the next 500, and whatever. Okay, so it's basically along that curve, they use the same methods. Uh, in terms of genocides and all these things, we know, for example, from the Bible, um, we know from the Bible and other other places that when genocides occur, they're selective. Uh, so, you know, you should see, for example, uh, a bias towards males being killed uh, at any mass burial ground. Uh, you should see uh, fewer nubile women. Now, could you tell that uh, from genomics? Actually, you can. Uh, this is a newer technology, but you can actually look at the methylome and you can actually figure out age. Methylome and mutation rates, too. Really, it's the methylome would be the easier one because mutation rates, you need to get really, really high quality somatic tissue. But So you can actually figure out people's ages uh, just from their genome. And obviously, you can figure out their sex. And so what, the prediction that I would make, uh, and this has been borne out in some places, is that in mass graves that are clearly the kind, kind of thing that you saw in Schindler's List, uh, you will mostly see children, old people, and males, and there will be a uh, there will be uh, missing who will be missing will probably be teenagers of both sexes and then women into their twenties, and that's because a teenager uh, is not. Uh, you know, basically, there's a there's a certain threshold at which a child can be a primary producer. Uh, at that threshold, they're a good slave, or they can be assimilable into the community. Uh, and then, obviously, with the nubile women, uh, you know, males, you know, it's like in the Iliad, you know, like uh, Achilles was mad because Ag Agamemnon stole his sex slave. So that's that's obviously a common thing. And is this speculation? No, not necessarily. Uh, we already have started seeing this in mass graves in places like Northern Europe. You know, Northern Europe is always comes up in the age of DNA, partly because they have a lot of archaeology departments, and so they have a huge tradition of <laughs> of doing all this stuff. You know, and so it's right. partly like not they they weren't actually like more genocidal. It's just that you know this is like the the lamp yeah, uh, on the tree. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's like Poland funds Poland, Germany funds Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Like if Iraq had the resources to fund things, you would see similar things. But yeah, you see like, you know, burials just from the skulls. You could just tell for the bones, okay, these look like young men. You look at the DNA and it's like, oh, it's 80% male. Um, and then like there's like missing females between like age seven and age 30. Okay, so what's up with that? Well, you know what's up with that. They were taken. They were not killed, right? Right. So, so this is a maybe a very kind of beginner question. Like, like how 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 far back do we actually have like burial, uh, burials? Like, how how far back can we tell? Yeah. Um. So this is an issue uh, where again, uh, basically, it drops off like. Uh, well, okay, so it's an exponential function. So at some point, like, it doesn't matter too much. Like, it's just very rare. That's the easiest way to say it. But so we have, like, a lot of data. We have, we have like, tens of thousands, probably 100,000, whatever, data points uh, for ancient DNA itself from the last 10,000 years. And that's because uh, the subfossilization process has not advanced very much. So fossils, as you know, from dinosaur bones, quote, dinosaur bones, they're not bones. They're actually, like, mineralized tissue. So bones and, and mostly the bones obviously are mineralized. Like so, the cells, uh, you know, are changed chemically as the minerals come in, and they preserve the structure. That is not true with something that's ten thousand years old. So if you have bones that are ten thousand years old, a lot of the tissue is still there. The DNA is still there. The oldest DNA that they've gotten, I think, right now is one point two million year old mammoth, I believe, and they also have a horse that's nine hundred thousand years ago. And so these are cases that are in the Arctic. Uh, and so it's really cold and dry, and so that preserved the DNA. There's also a case uh, of a lot of DNA coming out of a cave, of a deep cave in Spain. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce, I'm not going to say what it is. It's like Cima del Huevos or something like that, right? Like listeners can, can Google this, but it's in Spain. Dates to about like 400, 500,000 years ago. A lot of DNA coming out of that because it's in a, it's in a cave uh, that's relatively dry and relatively constant cool temperature. Uh, obviously, you know, there's bacteria, there's all these other things that are, are going to be contaminating over time. And so it gets harder and harder uh, the further back you go. It looks like... Um, it depends on the conditions, right? But like we have like we have stuff from like ten thousand years ago in Africa, okay? Like like literally in Cameroon, there's a rock shelter, there's DNA that's coming back from like ten thousand years ago. So the, the Holocene, which is the last eleven thousand seven hundred years after the Ice Age, there's a lot of DNA, so we can like create the demographics of the Holocene relatively easy easily. I think that this is just a matter of focus and funding. Uh, there are places where you know, for example, Democratic Republic of Congo. No funding for ancient DNA work. So one of the things uh, that people love about the U.S. in this field is America is the only nation that really funds stuff to study other countries. Uh, so, for example, the Australian government will study will fund stuff to study like the paleoanthropology of Australia. They're not going to fund studies studies for South Africa. Okay, in Europe, every single nation will fund its own stuff. But they're not usually going to fund uh, other nations' work. The exception here is the Max Planck Institute, which is kind of like a pan-European institution at this point. And they do do stuff across Europe. But again, if you look at Max Planck, um, if it's if they're the primary people leading it, it tends to be European. Uh, they're trying to move into late antiquity. Uh, again, it's Americans and American funding institutions that really kind of are imperial about looking at the whole world. Uh, and so that's just like something to note. But before ten thousand years, you know, there's a fair amount of there's a fair amount there's a fair number of results, especially from Europe. But um, it starts to get it starts to get you know 
okay, like probably off the top of my head, I think actually during the Ice Age, there's probably like only like a handful of of samples from China. Okay, uh, and so like like literally, you could count them on one hand probably. Like one of them is Tianyun. I think there's a couple of others uh, at various times. Okay, when you talk about the last ten thousand years, there's probably now dozens of samples from China in the last 10,000 years. So again, it's like order of magnitude. But um, if you get Wait, a so, good... Yeah. So dozens, that doesn't sound like a lot. Is it like yeah. dozens, like very large samplings? No, I mean, for Europe, it's not very large. For outside of Europe, it's pretty large. So basically, Europe is way ahead. Uh, and then East Asia is behind them. For India, for example, you have like... There's very little ancient DNA, and that's probably because Indians take forever to do anything. Uh, so this is like India has like it, again, it has like literally on one hand, literally one hand. That's it, right? Uh, and that's I, I actually don't know the reasons for this. Like they're just very slow to do anything. And the Chinese, I think there are dozens. They will go up to hundreds soon. Uh, but this is just because it takes time to assemble an ancient DNA, um, basically the industrial capacity to churn through ancient DNA because it isn't that difficult, but it does require some coordination of resources. So you need like a clean room, you need skilled technicians, you need the computational resources to filter the data. So it's not something that can be done very easily by a lab of six. It requires multiple labs coordinating together, uh, doing engaging in specialization and then generating the data, right? And so I think Chia Mei Fu, She's the one who's doing it in China, leading it. She comes, she did her, uh, she did, uh, I think it was a postdoc, David Reich's group. And so, uh, you know, she has the skills, she's bringing it together. But it'll, it'll be like, the exponential curve will be higher. One problem with China, of course, is uh, a lot of ancient remains uh, were used as medicine. So. Oh, interesting. They, they disappeared, right? I mean, they're valuable. They're valuable as like Chinese medicine. But I, mean, I think they still have a lot. They still have a lot. There's a lot of issues with the providencing because the communist era, uh, a lot of the pe a lot of the institutional knowledge from what I've heard disappeared like in 1949 because, or between 1949 and the end of the Cultural Revolution, uh, because those Chinese like you know you know professionals that were tasked with these antiquities were obviously going to be targeted, you know because of their class status and their socioeconomic status and all those things. So there's been some issues there too. Right, right. So, so to get to the, is this a bit of an oversimplification to say uh, that kind of when it comes to human human kind of population history, we don't have very much, you know, past a few thousand years, and there's very little way to recover it. Um. No, I don't think that's true at all. I think we have we have a lot. I like so for example, we we have like hundreds of samples from 5000 years ago from the Pontic steppe. Okay? Why? Because people care about the Pontic steppe because that's where Proto-Indo-Europeans are probably from. Uh, until the recent conflicts in Ukraine, uh it was it was like politically tenable. Uh both Russia in particular does fund this sort of stuff or is open to funding this sort of stuff. Um, and it's dry and it's cold. Okay. So we have plenty of information from there, but there are other places we don't have that much information from. I think a lot of it though, at this point just has to do with 
focus and institutional culture. So for example, we have dozens and dozens. We have hundreds of samples from Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is warm and moist, right? So you can't find the ancient DNA. Uh, we're talking like, you know, as far back as 10,000 years. Uh, but there are places where, you know, like Siberia, the Denisova cave, uh, which is like on the border between, between Siberia and Mongolia, has offered up really, really interesting ancient DNA that goes back like hundreds of thousands of years because it's at an excellent location, right? So it's going to vary based on the location, um, other things related to happenstance. So the Spanish location is relatively temperate, but I think the key with that is that cave was deep and isolated, and so it just wasn't very suitable to be disrupted by animals and other things, relatively dry, and so you have like a lot of DNA from that. So sometimes you just get random you know, locations that are, like, are highly amenable to preservation. Uh, there are things like, so for example, ancient Egypt, you would think that you would get a lot of DNA out of it. So the problem with ancient Egypt, though, is uh, mummification denatures DNA. It destroys DNA. So it's been really difficult to get DNA out of mummies, even though there's all these, you know, it's like an embarrassment of riches when it comes to potential samples, but all the samples uh, have been prepped in a way that destroys DNA. So it's really difficult. And that's why there's not been that much stuff coming out of Egypt. Right. I mean, that, that that's actually so... Hmm, there, there's a kind of uh, poetry there. Yeah. They're, 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 prepping, not, they're prepping them for the afterlife by uh, <laughs> rendering them completely unusable for... Cause every, yeah, because ev everyone asks that who gets into this. They're like, why Why has there not been more... And the mummies were what, what uh, Swante Pabo, who got the Nobel recently... That was what he originally targeted in the 1990s and the late 80s and 90s for ancient DNA. He targeted mummies, but all of the results were false positives of sample contamination. So they were all fake or all like false. And later they realized, oh, that's because the only DNA they're getting are from is from contamination because the mummies themselves, uh, all the DNA is just destroyed. It's like chemically, it's been chemically like stripped and degraded. Right. Yeah. So, right. So, I, I, I'm sorry if I'm I'm still trying to oversimplify here. So, in the in the kind of in the few thousands of years, it's mostly it's mostly funding constraints. You know, aside from the aside yeah. from the mummies, and then and then if you go if you go far beyond that, especially in warmer areas, it's just hard to find. It's just hard to find samples. Yeah, what I would say is it's hard to find samples from the Ice Age, but it's been relatively easy to find samples since the Ice Age. The Ice Age ended 11,700 11, years ago, so there's two. I think there's two variables here. I've been talking about the uh, the DNA degradation curve, which obviously like gets to be a much bigger thing once you hit 100,000 years versus 10,000 years. I think the other issue is also uh, after agriculture, humans became much more numerous. So we're just not that common. Oh, right. We're not that common during the Pleistocene, you know? Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so one of these questions that I want to investigate, or that I want to ask, you know, what evidence, what genetic evidence is there for, is the prevalence of uh, assortative mating. Is that you know, is that a new thing? Is that an old thing uh, in terms of in terms of prevalence? Like, like, is it you know, some people say you know, assortative mating is on the rise. You're seeing more, uh, more in terms of um, a sort of mating by college degree in the present age, obviously, like very present. But you know, is this you know, is this like peak assortative mating, 
or ha- have there been like periods of much higher assorted mating or cultures of much higher assorted mating in the past? Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, so let's talk about what assorted mating is. Uh, so for actually, uh, those of you, it should be, uh, it's going to be free soon. Uh, for those of you that are interested in this topic, I'm just going to plug my own Substack. Uh, I did an interview with two uh, statistical geneticists, uh, Alex Young and James Lee, and we talked about assorted mating for like, 20 minutes. Uh, so uh, if you check that out uh, at my Substack, um, it's it's gated mostly right now. But if you go to unsupervisedlearning.libsyn.com, it should be up there by mid-August. So I don't know when this is going to post. But anyways, assortative mating is um, assortative mating is basically when you have a positive correlation on a characteristic uh, within the population when it comes to pairs, right? So like if tall people mate with tall people preferentially. And usually you could do like a correlation off it, right? Some sort of Pearson's correlation of a quantitative trait. Um, obviously, if the correlation is like one or something crazy, it's just like they're only mating with people with the exact same value. That's ridiculous. That doesn't happen, right? Um, and like you would you would obviously for height, you would do it in standard deviation units. That's sex corrected. Um, so you could do this with IQ. You just said education. Uh, you could do it with skin color, all sorts of things. And there have been observations of all of these characteristics. Uh, in terms of sorting in various populations to various degrees. So assortative mating is uh, basically a generic general label for a lot of specific dynamics. And those specific dynamics are going to change. So, for example, assortative mating on education did not occur uh, 200 years ago because no one was educated. Right, to the, right. <laughs> to the first approximation, right? Uh, so this is like a new type of assortative mating. So what is assortative mating really on education? I think one thing you would say is like it's probably like, on intelligence, on class background, it's actually a proxy for other things. Has assortative mating on class background happened? Okay, we know this is true from the historical record. Obviously it did. That's why dowries exist or bride prices exist also. Um, a lot of times marriages in many societies between high status people in particular uh, are you know material transactions between two elite lineages. So assortative mating did happen, um, and it does happen. And it happens on a lot of different traits. The question here that you're asking is, can we figure it out genetically? And so what we would need to do is have a massive uh, sample set uh, uh, from ancient DNA and look at the genes that are associated with educational attainment or height, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and then look within the pedigrees uh, and figure out who's mating with whom. Uh, There are a few cases now where we do have pedigrees of like villages, like they're being literally, if you follow my Twitter feed, you see me retweet stuff like that with the last week where people are actually reconstructing pedigree pedigrees in Neolithic villages. Uh, so we have the beginnings of being able to answer the question, but um, no, this has not been queried uh, through uh, ancient DNA yet because of the sample sizes. There are statistical ways you could actually do it. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, you'd have to, look at like the linkage between different different you know alleles and stuff like that but nobody's really done it um i think the best person though uh to um whose work to look into using historical records is greg clark uh so greg clark's an economist he was at davis i think he's at university of copenhagen now economic historian he's written a a series of books and uh about this this uh topic uh, and it basically shows uh, that uh, assortative mating has been happening uh, for, you know, a long time. And that uh, what he calls uh, – so I think he, – so he published a paper 
the inheritance of social status in England, 1600 to 2022. And uh, uh, basically it shows that there's very little change in the assortative mating um, and that it's relatively high for something that he, he created an index of social status. Obviously going to Oxford could not be part of an index, you know, more than probably the last hundred years because so few people did also women did not go either you know so you know he had to create this index um and he found that the model of uh of assortative mating uh which is relatively high uh and so like the persistence the the persistence mo can be modeled as genetic so that people know each other's social status uh in some sort of like intuitive way it's not very clear but the point here is people know each other's social status and they've been assortatively mating uh for 500 years in england this is about england it's through english uh records which he has access to he has done greg has done preliminary work in other places like china india etc etc the records are way spottier but he sees approximately the same statistic of social persistence of uh, status over time, except in India, the persistence is higher, which means that the stratification and assortative mating is higher, which is actually what we would expect because of uh, caste dynamics, right? Um, so this is not genetic, but uh, it does point to uh, a heritable component of uh, assortative mating that goes back really, really far back. Right. And I think like a very good example of this is uh, is the Indian castes, right? You had a excellent article on this. It'll be it'll be linked below. Uh, but like how? I mean, there's a kind of backwards projection where we can do where if we already have the kind of social practices, right? We we can see the social practices, you know, in the present day, or at least like some version of them. We, we can kind of look back and say, okay, maybe maybe this is why, you know, certain, certain genetic uh, patterns um, happened. I, I, I'm not sure if it's possible at all to try to do the reverse. If we have, say, if we have, you know, because I, I'm of the opinion that many historical records may just be completely wrong. Um may just be you know may, may may just be shaped for kind of political convenience and that if you go back mm -hmm. you know sorry yeah yeah no i i know what you're saying i mean the issue with the text is it's telling you about a very very like narrow slice of society often and it's through the voices of a very very narrow number of people especially in the pre-modern period uh you know we right. are we are overwhelmed with text today but even today i mean if you read like the Atlantic, it's written by college-educated people for college-educated people. Yeah, right? yeah. I just look at, you know, it, you know, Bology has this line, uh, if, if you think the news is fake, imagine history, right? That, that, that's kind of what I think about it. Like, like, are we, are, are we really keeping, you know, are, are we really keeping the equivalent of like, you know, are, are we, are we keeping the equivalent of like Arziv or are we keeping the equivalent of like the Atlantic? And there's a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, so um, if you read, uh, obviously, if you read, uh, you know, the history, like Chinese annals or like the Greek history, the Roman histories, you know, the lives of the Caesars <laughs> is the lives of the Caesars, right? Uh, so that's this is why social historians, cultural historians, economic historians 
try to look at other proxy. So, for example, uh, Brian uh, Ward-Sykes uh, has a great book about the fall of the Roman Empire, and he looks at things like pollution in uh, – this is the, the, the fact – I mean, there's a bunch of facts in it that I remember, but this is the most salient to me. The levels of uh, lead pollution in English lakes, in British lakes, did not reach the levels that they saw in the 3rd century AD uh, until 1800. So what that's telling you right there is industrial activity in England uh, declined in the late Roman period and did not recover until about 1800, which is basically on the ascension uh, curve of the, quote, industrial revolution in England. And so that's obviously a uh, not biased by you know elite concerns. This is just like a material output. You look at coin hoards. Uh, you can look at archaeological remains of like uh, stress uh, in bones. So to figure out like if a famine is happening or not. So we know that the Black Death killed a lot of people, right? Uh, they right. they record that it killed a lot of people. But interestingly, only one monarch. Uh, I think it was like Sancho of Navarre or something. Only one monarch is recorded to have died of the Black Death. And so from that, like, what's going on here? Was the death count actually, like, way lower than, than are they exaggerating? Or, which I think is the real answer, uh, if you have sufficient nutrition, uh, the plague is not nearly as fatal. But most people did not have sufficient nutrition, or they were on the, you know, they were on the Malthusian margin. And so they died, or a lot of people died, right? So I think that that's what... That's what that, that is telling you. In terms of demographics, um, you know, uh, Gildas, uh, let, let's talk about like what we know that turned out to be true, uh, even if it seemed a little weird. Uh, 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 Welsh, we would call him Welsh today, but he was British at the time. Uh, dates probably to the early 6th century, early 500s. Uh, wrote, I think he wrote, it was called The Ruin of Britain. Uh, uh, and yeah, the, the Ruin of Britain. Uh, is uh, the exidio a conquesta Britannia? Anyway, the root of Britain, and it was basically a, a it was a sermon about how the British had been conquered by the Anglo-Saxons, how they were being driven into the ocean, blah blah blah, all this stuff. And so, what historians in the late twentieth century uh, concluded was like, you know, this is exaggeration. Um, obviously, you know, mass migrations like this don't happen. And uh, you know, uh, Norman Davies, great Welsh historian, pointed out that. You know, even as late as the 8th century in Wessex, uh, which is like, you know, modern day uh, Dorset. I think Dorset would be a good area. Uh, you know, there were British, there were Welsh-speaking people that were paying like a different tax rate and their wear guild. So if you kill them, you have to pay a lot less. Okay, so they were around. So obviously it was Germanization uh, through cultural means and that not too many people migrated. So this was, this was the standard wisdom year 2000 because obviously Gildas exaggerated right for for dramatic effect well the dna comes in turns out he probably didn't really exaggerate uh it you know probably the estimates are the anglo-saxon component in the english population itself is i don't know between 25 and 35 percent uh probably as high as 50 percent east anglia which faces you know faces denmark and the netherlands which is where the anglo-saxons you know, would kind of come from Northern Germany, Netherlands, Denmark. Uh, and so there was a massive migration and archeologists noticed that the villages totally changed in Eastern England in the, in the sixth century, as if a new people had shown up. And uh, the DNA shows that in Eastern England, there were German women there too. So the whole families were moving. So this was a folk wandering. This was a folk migration. 
uh, and it was substantial. Now, it's not the majority of the English ancestry, but it's a substantial minority. And obviously, uh, you know, these sorts of migrations must have had like a massive demographic impact because uh, they weren't there weren't like hundreds of thousands. There were probably tens of thousands, but they caused a lot of chaos, a lot of famine, a lot of die off to the point where now a third of the ancestry of the English people is Anglo-Saxon. Obviously, their culture is entirely Anglo-Saxon. So there is a cultural component to that. But um, the point here is Gildas was vindicated in terms of reflecting probably reality of the brutality uh, and the chaos caused by the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons. And the historians of the late 20th century were not correct, you know? But, you know, this is like a case-by-case situation. Uh, there are other cases where... So, for example, you know, we know from the material remains uh, that the Western Roman Empire went under massive, massive uh, demographic uh, collapse, uh, material decline, but the genetics don't make it clear that the, you know, outside of a few areas like northern, uh, like Brittany, which seemed to have a migration from Cornwall, uh, which is obvious in the language, and a few areas in northern France, uh, Belgium, Western Germany, it doesn't seem like the demographic impact was that great, uh, which which makes sense because uh, culturally, these areas remain Latin-speaking, and the Christian church never disappeared. In Britain, the Christian church disappeared. So there was a total massive societal collapse. Uh, they became pagan. And this is because, to a great extent, the people were replaced. Okay? Same thing happened to the Balkans. The Christian church disappeared. It switched over from mostly Latin speech uh, in the Balkans to Slavic speech. Well, it turns out you know, something like 35 to 50% of the ancestry in uh, South Slavic people is looks more like it's Polish or Czech or Belarusian, and the rest is indigenous. So this indicates like massive migrations, and you can see it in the cultural imprints. Uh, with hindsight, the areas where the language turned over and the and the Christian religion disappeared are exactly the areas where uh, demographic collapse really did happen and replaced did occur. Replacement did occur. Right. So. One question here is of, so, so there's a kind of specific pattern that happens with, um, have you read a, have you read a World on Fire by Amy Chua? Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah. Are, are you like, you know about the rough idea of like a market dominant minority? Yeah. Right. So, so like, uh, for, for the audience, for, for the audience, this is essentially, you know, like a minority population that is very successful economically. Uh, I think the the population she starts with is uh, ethnic Chinese in Malaysia, but you can also see very many examples of this throughout history. Um, you know, you can think of that this is both a stereotype, but it's also true of Jews being successful uh, as another example. Uh, I think like ethnic Germans in Argentina as well. Right, so this is also somewhat interesting. Um, but you have, yeah, you basically have many so, so populations. Sogdians uh, were a market dominant minority in China a thousand years ago. Right, right. So, so you end up with, um, and you know, you can still look at that in some countries today, and you know, you'll you'll find that they're still there. Uh, and, and you can look at you can look at some countries and see that you know maybe they aren't there, right? So so like what what kind of genetic evidence do we have for um, you know essentially pogroms, right? What kind of genetic evidence do we have to kind of illustrate you know what what is this conflict like 
and you know how how many kind of ethnic uh you know market dominant minorities have actually survived to the present day well i mean jews are the best example uh they were not really I mean, they were not necessarily a market dominant minority until the last thousand years. So, I mean, they're not known as a market dominant minority in the Roman Empire. Uh, they were just like a weird religious minority. Um, but uh, obviously, in Europe, they became a market dominant minority more or less, probably less in Iberia, but definitely more in uh, Central Europe, Central Eastern Europe. Uh, so, you know, Jewish genetics is pretty clear. Um, substantial, substantial amount of their ancestry is Middle Eastern. Uh, so, depending on your depending on your, the model that you use. So there's still, there's still alternative models, uh, but like it's anywhere from 10 to 50% is Middle Eastern. Most of the rest is, you know, you'll say Western Southern European. So like, you know, Italian, you know, Southern French, that sort of thing, probably really Northern Italian, Central Italian is most of the rest. And then a minority of their ancestry, like a, let's say like 10 to 20%, you know, is, is like Germanic or Slavic. Okay, so they had like, you know, um, and, and basically uh, it looks like in terms of the pogroms, like you can actually see small amounts of Jewish ancestry in a lot of uh, Polish people, not the majority, but a lot. So obviously Jews, Jews left the, uh, the shtetl and became Christian assimilated, you know, so genetically most of the gene flow over the last like, 750 years has been from Jews to Gentiles uh, through Jewish assimilation. Uh, one thing, one reason given for the matrilineal descent, which is actually very quickly. What do you, yeah. what do you mean by gene flows for the audience? Uh, basically uh, Jewish people that became Christian. And so they brought Jewish genes, Ashkenazi genetic, uh, you know, distinctive Ashkenazi genetic ancestry into the Gentile population. Right. Right. So you find, so like, you know, someone who's Polish is a Catholic will get back to their 2% Ashkenazi, and that's, like, super confusing. And then, like, they'll look into their genealogy, and they'll find someone 200 years ago who has a baptismal name, uh, but the baptism is dated to... Uh, basically, their baptism is dated to when they were clearly, like, 30. You know? So, obviously, mm -hmm. a Jewish... That's obviously a, Jew, a Jewish person, you know? It's obviously Jew, because, like, most Catholics did not get baptized at 30. A board count. Right, right, right. So, uh, so you know, figure things like that out. There's not that much the other way around. Like Christians did not become Jewish, which makes sense because it was a social taboo. It was a legal taboo. Like you could be killed, and the Jewish community would suffer a reprisal if they were poaching Christians. Right. So genetically, these uh, that market dominated community was pretty insulated. Uh, if you want to talk about Chinese in Southeast Asia, the Baba Chinese, uh, who are like partly Malayized, they're about 10% Malay. And this is all like due to women that were integrated really early on uh, during the settlement. But in general, uh, I've looked at overseas uh, Chinese communities. and You know, I mean, in, in, like, in, in areas that are Muslim, they're very endogamous because uh, once they become Muslim, uh, they don't stay Chinese very long. So there are, I mean, they're way Chinese, but that's a minority, but there are Chinese that convert to Islam. Uh, in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia and Malaysia. But once they convert to Islam, like they, they tend to like become indigenous, right? Uh, either like, you know, you know, wh whatever ethnicity that's in their area. Same thing with like Indian Muslims, like they tend to intermarry a lot with the Malays in Indonesia or in Malaysia and just become Malay. Like actually Mahathir Muhammad is really his, interesting. Uh, Mahathir Muhammad's grandfather was from Kerala. So he was a he was a, he was a Malayali Muslim. 
So obviously he's Malay identified, but he's a fourth Indian genetically. I think he has some Chinese ancestry on his mom's side too, right? But so the, in, in Indonesia, it's like that. In Thailand, as some of your listeners will know, it's totally different. In Thailand, there's extensive intermarriage between uh, the Thai and the Chinese uh, because the difference between Chinese folk religion and Chinese Buddhism and Thai, Thai Theravada Buddhism is like minimal. Uh, there's no dietary constraints that are like barriers. You know, that's a huge issue in Muslim Southeast Asia where Chinese obviously eat pork. Right. Muslim yeah, population yeah. do not. And so that just makes a massive, massive difficulty in terms of integration. In Thailand, there's a lot of mixed people. Uh, some of them identify as Chinese. Some of them identify as Thai. Uh, the Thai royal family itself is of partial Chinese descent. Uh, a lot of elite Thai. In, in Malaysia, elite Thai are disproportionately Chinese or part Chinese. Like that is known. But it's not as salient of an issue in Thailand because there's so much extensive intermarriage and, um, you know, they're very assimilated is, is the way I would say it. I think in the Philippines where Amy Chua's family is from, uh, it's kind of an in-between situation. It's not the, – the, the segregation is not as intense as, say, in Indonesia. Uh, I think Malaysia is a separate case because a third of the population or so, 25% to 30% of the population is Chinese. You know, they're not like a very tiny minority. I mean, there are there are districts in like Western Malay, Peninsular Malay, which I think the Chinese are the largest population. But in Philippines, they're very tiny. The social distance between the native Filipinos and the Chinese is not as great as in the Muslim Southeast Asian countries, but it's not as close as it is in the Buddhist Southeast Asian countries. So, for example, a lot of people might know this, but uh, a lot of the boat people from Vietnam are not ethnic kin. They're not ethnic Vietnamese. They're Hoa. They are actually Chinese Vietnamese, but you know the boundaries between the two communities are much more fluid than you know it is in the Philippines or in Southeast Asia. So whether the market dominant minorities uh, remain separate or distinct is due to multiple parameters: religion, uh, diet, like cultural distance is a big deal uh, in those sorts of things. So you know, for example, the market dominant minority in East Africa tends to be Gujarati Indians. You know. And there are several groups, like some of them are Banias, some of them are Patels, and some of them are Ismailis, uh, like Co- Ismailis, like Koja Ismailis, like Aga Khan uh, Muslims. And they're all Gujarati, and they're very endogamous. And they're endogamous in the Indian subcontinent, and they're endogamous in Africa, right? Like if you outmarry in that community, you are not part of the community, full stop. So right. I mean, there, there you have a very, very high barrier. The exceptions are probably like if they convert to Christianity, and then they'll intermarry with local Africans more, you know. So something that I something that I found when reading uh, another post, this is your post on uh, out of Africa, is uh, the, these different um, these different population genetics models. What exactly is meant by a population genetics model? I, I, I'm not completely yeah. sure what this is. Well, so I mean, basically, a model is you know, there's a bunch of parameters, a bunch of variables, basically. And you input ver- values into the variables, and um, they output something, and that output you can test against reality. So the easiest one uh, is the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. Uh, so it's uh, uh, P squared plus 2PQ plus uh, Q squared. So P and Q, whatever, it's X and Y, same thing. So basically <coughs> – excuse me. So at a given genetic locus, uh, as a stylized fact, it's mostly true. You can think of there being a dominant allele, so a dominant genetic variant in the population, 
and a secondary genetic variant in the population. So that's X and Y, P and Q. Uh, yeah. There could be others, but just ignore those. Those are very low frequency. So first approximation, there's there's A and B, okay, P and Q. Okay, well, you have two copies of each gene. So you could have like three combinations. You could have PP, which is PQ, P squared, uh, 2PQ, which is obviously um, going to be the heterozygote, the P and the Q, and then QQ, which is Q squared. And so the frequencies that come out in a random mating population uh, are based on this formula, right? Right. And, and for the audience, that's literally like P plus Q squared, right? Like yeah. that's where it comes from. You just expand the, you just expand the equation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah. but the but the but the way it's a model is that's the random mating assumption. Well, if right. you take uh, if you take uh, a bunch of genes, so like basically, let's assume you have a population of Swedes and and Nigerians. You have fifty and fifty, and you pull them together as a hundred. Okay, and you use this model, and you check to see if if, if the genetic distribution follows the model. It's not going to follow the model. Because they're not random mating populations. There's two populations there. Right. Right? So that, that's what I mean. So with a population genetic model, you have a bunch of you have a bunch of parameters, and that from these parameters you generate these statistics and you compare the statistics to the empirical reality, right? And so uh, in some of my posts, like people will see things like admixture plots. You know, to a great extent, what these admixture things are doing is taking this random mating model, running it across multiple different population uh, scenarios. And then testing the outputs in simulations against the empirical distribution. Okay, so you have data. Data is coming in from the genotypes, and then you have a model, and the model has within it random mating population, like five random mating populations, four random mating populations, two random mating populations. Well, if I had fifty Nigerians and fifty uh, Swedes, uh, the po- the pop the the best fit statistically would definitely be two random mating populations. And then the model itself would assign 100% population one to probably the Nigerians and 100% to the Swedes, and that's how it, it would it would pan out. Sometimes there are other issues like uh, or other things you can do. Like okay, um, you have a model for um, uh, let me see. Uh, you have a model, so you have a phylogenetic tree of a popula- of populations, any populations of any species, right? And that phylogenetic tree shows the average relatedness of the populations. They've been separated. And so what you have is you have an expectation of uh, across any two genetic loci, you have an expectation of uh, genetic distance, divergence, based on that tree, right? So the tree is the model. Well, what you do is you scan over the genome and you look for genetic positions that don't fit the tree. And those genetic positions mm. are much more likely to be shaped by natural selection. So, for example, if you have the overall genomes of a bunch of people from Aust- indigenous Australians, a bunch of Swedes, and a bunch of Congolese, what you're going to see is the Congolese are way separated, and the Swedes and uh, the Australian Aborigines are on one branch, and they recently diverged. Okay, that's the whole genome. Now you go through the genomic, you go through the markers you're going to see uh, a bunch of genetic positions where actually the Australian Aborigines uh, match with the Congolese. Okay. And why do they match with the Congolese? Some of it's random. There's going to be a random number of genes that do that, but you're, but you notice the genes and you look at the literature and you see what they do. You'll see that every single gene uh, or the vast majority of the genes that are known to be implicated in skin color, 
the Australian Aborigines match the Congolese. Which, oh, which, interesting. Which which matches like what we see on the outside, but that's because that's natural selection. That's changed the the Swedes, right? Right, and is that is that because of like social social processes? Is that because of like you know Pro- probably more the, natural the, the absorbing Pro- absorbing sunlight? Yeah, yeah probably the, the UV stuff. I, I I generally lead towards the natural selection because because the Australian Aborigines, their ancestors left Africa, went through the Arabian Peninsula, went through the Indian subcontinent, went through Southeast Asia, then went to Australia. So they didn't really. I mean, they did go a little bit outside the tropical zone, but not that far, you know? Okay. So this is so th- their complexion is actually probably like, you know, the complexion of the ancestral human, if you had to bet, is probably dark brown, not as dark as like Sudanese, who actually have signatures of natural selection to get darker, you know, than the typical African, because they're... Oh, at, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so some of the really, really dark-skinned people, like they have like evidence in their genome that this is like a new adaptation, uh, probably to pastoralism, because uh, if you're a forager, uh, this is just kind of like, I'm kind of BSing here a little, but not too much. If you're a forager in the Sahel of the Sudanic zone, you're probably going to be foraging and hunting, uh, I bet, uh, during the twilight hours, like in the morning and at, at the dusk, you know? You, you don't really need to like focus on midday, like it's hot, it's crappy. Now, if you're a pastoralist, and you're you're herding cattle. You got to be out there. You got to be out there because there's predators at midday, right. right? And so, like this is why there could be selection, relatively recent selection for much darker skin, because you're out there. I mean, yeah, you have a hat, you do other things, but I mean that tropical sun is crazy. Right, right, and okay, so. Yeah, that that makes sense. So, so it's also a kind of natural natural phenomenon. That yeah, I, I think that makes sense. So, with these models, there's always. I mean, I'm not familiar with it in the sense of uh, in genetics, but you know, I, I'm more familiar with it in economics and in uh, statistics. Yeah, some of them. Are, there's the question. Sorry, some of them are some of them are very similar to the economic models. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like comparative um, statics type stuff. There's always the question of of complexity, right? I think you you bring this up very early in the essay. Um, pe- people want the simpler models. People want the you know the, the very straightforward to, to to test ones. And then you ha- you kind of have like a bimodal distribution of models in my view, right? You you have like the you have the one that's like you have the ones that are like two three equations, and then you have the um, you have the kind of world models you have, you know, climate models are kind of the best example of this where you want to model, you know, every single um, uh, meteorological process to, to kind of predict, um, to kind of predict severe uh, weather events, you know, more complex climate models. I mean, Um, you have some economic models, especially in finance will do this obviously with the goal of making money. Um, Yeah. And this is, this is what I'm I'm seeing in your article as well, right? There, there, is it true, first of all, that there's a kind of bimodal distribution here of like exceedingly complex models and, sure. you know, ones that are two or three equations? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is, you know, the classical population genetic analytical models are definitely simpler because they're analytical models. Uh, just just for the, the listeners out there, I mean, you know, these are models that were originally devised on, you know, with pencil and paper by humans, okay? Uh, and right. so a lot of those, uh, you know, there are two locus models, but uh, 
you know, the, the math is not trivial, but the models themselves, when you get down to like their brass tacks, they don't have that many parameters going on. Now, uh, when you when you're talking about the complicated models, so if you're doing like uh, approximate Bayesian computation and stuff, so there are these models. Uh, so and this I, I did bring up in the out of Africa stuff. Uh, there are these models that are basically using often they use Beast or something similar to Beast. Uh, these like Bayesian modeling systems that have a bunch of parameters, and you know what they're doing is um, they're altering the model specifications, their type of models, uh, and they're altering the parameters of the models. And then they're running simulations, and then they check the simulations against the empirical data. That's what they're doing. And so those are extremely complicated. And uh, right now, uh, the people that, you know, so for example, I think Aaron Ragsdale is the first author on uh, the paper that I kind of like use as a starting point for that piece that you're talking about. You know, he is known to be somewhat of a simulation savant in population genetics. Like he's run a lot of simulations and he has very good intuition for it. Um, that's not the same with the simpler models. Uh, that have like fewer parameters. There's a lot of people that have run those or like use those. That's just like part of textbook pop gen, right? And so yes, there is. There's two ends of it. I would say something like skin color is kind of in between because it it's a um, I don't know what the it's polygenic, but it's actually like dominated by a few. So for example, uh, intelligence is totally is basically like a central limit theorem Gaussian distribution. It's it's like thousand. I think um, James Lee said. Did he say 1,200? There's 1,200 single nucleotide polymorphisms. Yeah, I think that's what I remember, yeah. Yeah, that he he said for for intelligence, right? 1,200, right? So that's like 1,200 variables, right? Uh, But for skin color, like I would say like 90% of the variation is probably accounted for in the first 25 loci, okay? And then like the other, maybe 50%. Let me correct that. 50% the first 25 and then the other 50% is a long tail that uh, decays as like you have smaller and smaller effects. And so, yes, you probably do have hundreds of loci that affect skin color to explain 90% of the variation. But the first 25 explain, you know, 50% of it. And so you could get like pretty good predictors in forensic genomics. Like that's what Authorm is starting to do um, uh, just with pigmentation because it's such a well-studied trait. And that's why you could do reconstructions of ancient people because pigmentation is a well-studied trait in humans and the genes that control it are pretty well conserved across metazoans. So the, the gene that, uh, for example, the gene that causes much lighter skin in many Western Eurasians, uh, SLC24A5, uh, that was discovered in zebrafish. So it was discovered in like these like golden colored zebrafish that were like highly, de- you know, they were highly depigmented. Well, it turns out that that same gene uh, which is basically a membrane. It's a membrane. Uh, it's a membrane. Uh, you know, cellular membrane. Uh, you know, channel gene. And basically, that's a big deal because uh, melanocytes. You know, pigment stuff like that have to do with cellular membrane going across the membrane. Whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, pigmentation is very well understood. It's easy to predict, and its genetic architecture is relatively simple. Uh, it's you know, really two dozen genes give you huge bang for the buck. That is not true with height. Definitely not true with intelligence. Right. Is is skin color is that a rare is that a rare exception or or is it just that for most cases if, if there's something that's dominated by like twenty five genes people don't investigate further. It's just that people particularly care about skin color. Well, I think people do particularly care about skin color mostly for forensics. Uh, I there is so it's okay, like fair. well forensics and skin cancer. 
right? Those are the so most of the funding for skin for skin color comes from forensic genomics and uh, you know grants related to skin cancer and stuff like that. Albinism. A lot of the genes that cause normal lighter skin are also implicated in albinism. So there's like more extreme mutations that cause albinism. So OCA two HERC two, which is the genetic position that causes most of the blue eye brown eye variation in the world. Uh, I mean, obviously in Europeans, but in the world in general, uh, there's a mutation there that causes like less pigmentation in the iris. Well, there's another type of mutation there that's actually uh, causes albinism. And uh, that's what the gene is actually uh, named after OCA2. It's like, uh, it's like, yeah, oculitaneous, oculocutaneous albinism 2. That was actually the genetic condition. So they named the gene OCA2, and later they found out that it was implicated in normal variation as well. But that was only later. I when, see. Yeah, when genomic uh, resources came to the throne. So there's a lot of diseases that are kind of like this, uh, where there's uh, you know big, big markers that affect like a lot of the variation, but like maybe a lot is twenty percent. So there's still stuff to do, right? But then a lot of other things are are like height. And then intelligence is the most extreme case. Intelligence and behavioral stuff often is the most ex- more extreme cases of uh, very, of very highly polygenic, highly polygenic, very small effect, uh, common variants. So it's just like intelligence is the general intelligence, is the most difficult. That's what I'll say. Stuff like autism and schizophrenia is kind of an in-between case because there are cases of autism and schizophrenia that are due to large effect, but very rare genes. So it's not easy to pick up. But unless you have whole genomes, but you know, it's a somewhat different architecture. Those are very heritable, by the way. Schizophrenia and autism, people are shocked that the heritability is 70 to 80 percent. Huh. So, so, so that doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all, just, just given people I know. Like, obviously, that's anecdotal, but yeah, yeah, I'm not too surprised by that. Um, anyways, anyway, so probably going to move on to. Uh, the third segment here. Uh, you said that Strauss is underrated. Uh, house or a good opener to this is something like, "Why do you not explain tweets to people?" <laughs> well, because sometimes, uh, well, I mean, like most people are dumb, and so uh, I, I don't really want to always, uh, you know, have to explain everything. Uh, I'm actually like signaling to like an in-group some of the time. And also some of the time, some people will get triggered by what the tweet really means, but they're too dumb to understand. So I'm happy with them being ignorant. Right. This is very, this is very common. Um, I I do have the experience often of, of sometimes a tweet gets, you know, taken well. I, I think like with, with my kind of target audience, I, I sort of tweet, assuming that people will understand and assuming that people are kind of, you know, people are not going to get well, okay. outraged. I mean, like and then sometimes it goes out of, out of the target. Exactly. From retweets. Well, so let's go, let's go brass tacks in terms of like, I'll give an example, which I think you probably will know of. I often do a substitution. That's really obvious. Uh, in my opinion of like uh, late Roman paganism with like liberalism and Christianity and Christianity as like wokeism or some like radical leftist ideology, right? Uh, yeah. And so I will actually like, if you read the tweet, it's about the fourth century. 
And um, I seem pretty anti-Christian, actually. And so I've had issues, so I'm going to give you, like, Molly Ziegler-Hemingway uh, of, like, the Federalists. I think she's the executive editor now. She was following me on Twitter. She unfollowed me after a bunch of pro-pagan tweets. She had no idea what I was talking about, you know? Because she, she's, very, very, uh, she's very, very evangelical. She's Lutheran, Missouri Synod, and so she's obviously offended by that or, like, it was annoying to her. And, like, you know, so, so some conservative Christians unfollowed me. And, like, you know, and actually, like, Rod Dreher uh, messaged me, and he was very confused, and he wanted to know about the pagans in the Christian church that I was talking about. And so I had to explain to him what I was saying. After I did, he was like, okay, your tweets, all of your tweets now make sense. So it's like a, it's like a key, you know? So it's like a key. You, you use the key, you unlock it, and then all of a sudden the structure just makes total sense, right? But, I mean, if you need the key... I don't really know. Like, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. And if it's not obvious to you, I don't really know if I should tell you that, you know? So sometimes I get like new atheists jumping in, like kind of like liberal-ish or leftist new atheists jumping in, not understanding what I said. And there's a whole parallel thread of conversation. And I just leave that. I just leave, let them, let them to their thing. Cause like, I don't really want to get involved and I probably don't want them commenting on my original tweet anyway. I don't know. On one hand, you can see this, you can see a genuine opposition to the comparison, right? Like, for example, I certainly know people, um, some of whom have been this on this podcast, who would say, like, I understand the Straussian illusion. I just disagree with it, right? I just disagree with the comparison to Christianity. Yeah, that 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 happens, and like you know, it's not like a perfect uh, comparison, anyways. It's just like something that's most people understand what I'm getting at. Yeah. So, so you also mentioned the the Kaliuga as this, right? Um, as as a kind of Straussian Straussian metaphor, but you know we are we are in the Kaliuga, right? We've been in the Kaliuga for a while. Um, what what is the Straussian reading of of uh, the Hindu scriptures? Well, so I mean, you know, most of the people that are reading me, I'm not Hindu. Most of the people that are reading me are not Hindu, so we can't take. I mean, literally, it's not true. But if you talk about like what is supposed to happen in the Kali Yuga or the end times or some apocalyptic, you know, um, literature, a, a lot of it from the point of view of socially conservative people is happening, you know? So, um, you know, like Caitlyn Jenner is stunning and beautiful. Uh, Lizzo is what sexy is now. Like that is an inversion. That's like a literal inversion. And it's kind of rubbing in people's face, the opposite of what they actually feel. Um, some, I mean, some of the people, uh, look, the, the, the nuclear engineer guy uh, who was, I don't know if he was trans or gay or what, but you know who I'm talking about. The guy who was into, yeah, dog- Sam, dog- Sam Britton. Yeah, do- into doggy play and stole, like, I mean, okay, basically, like, the perverts are in power. Like, they're literally in power, you know? Right. Um, so it's like. It, it, it's not know, only he- accepted, but mandatory. Yeah, but I mean, it's also like, this is like great. Like, isn't it great that like, you know, or, you know, like drag queens, okay? Uh, That's always been a thing. That's part of our culture. But the difference today is like a lot of these liberal women in particular, they think they need to support drag queens. So they take their kids to drag shows where that are very sexualized. That's weird. You know, 10 years ago, they would have been freaked out. But they've been they've been uh, brainwashed by negative polarization to think that that's great. You know, and, you know the same thing happens on the right in different ways. So you know, in such cases. Well, I mean, as Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis talks about, like you know, invading Mexico and bombing Mexico without its consent, and everyone's clapping. 
And I'm like, okay, like, I know why you're doing it. This is a reflex, you know, but this is insane. Yeah, you know? what we were talking about earlier with the nons, right? That's a very good example. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're LARPing, they're, they're being performative, you know? But it's going beyond performativity in to, insofar as, uh, you know, we have, like, what's it, Levine? Uh, I mean, look, for, to the rest of the world, they're just like, what the hell's going on? You know, because this is, to that, the rest of the world, this is a man dressed as a woman, uh, as, as a, a general or something, or a colonel, I don't remember, but just the whole thing, uh, everything seems flipped weird and confusing and disorienting and uh this is like you know it's like kali yuga you know and and the people that are supposed to be leading us uh they're actually kind of evil in some ways like they're leading us to evil uh and uh also our, our elites are selfish all they care about is themselves they don't care about virtue they don't serve uh they just serve themselves they're self-serving you know so a lot of uh the virtues you know i think this is like you know i could like quote you know, you know, Cato the Elder or something too. You know, like this is uh, as old as time. Like societies decay, they become decadent, and uh, they lose their moorings, and that's where we are in a lot of ways. Yes, we're rich. Uh, yes, we have, you know, a lot of innovation and a lot of dynamism that's a holdover from the 20th century. But all good things end, and we just need to be careful about that. Right. Will it end? Is this the end of America? Is this the end of the American Empire? I mean, three or four years ago, I would have said, yeah, because China's coming up. But China itself is like has some serious problems that have been like basically. I mean, I don't want to sound like a Fukuyamaist, but uh, Hu Jintao, the older, soft authoritarian uh, Chinese uh, order, probably. I mean, I think it would have led to like greater competency, more economic dynamism. Uh, Xi, on the other hand, wants a more Maoist, classical communist direction. Uh, and so I think that's actually making China weaker, more erratic, uh, fewer ability to form alliances, you know, and also just destroying its ability to have any soft power. Uh, America has a lot of hard power, but we also have like pretty much unparalleled soft power. Uh, like, you know, we have like, you know, K-pop is interesting because that's, you know, exception that proves the rule or whatever, you know, there's some things related to Bollywood that have spread to some parts of the non-American world partly because Bollywood's more socially conservative. So, you know, and that, that, I think, I think say, why is Bollywood popular in, you know, you have these articles that come out, oh, it's popular in Uzbekistan. Well, I mean, look, if America produced films like it produced in the 1950s, Bollywood would not have purchased in Uzbekistan. You know, the issue is America. Yeah, and, film... and even the name is like kind of derivative, right? It's very funny. Um... Yeah. Like I, I do think, I don't know, like American I mean, there's a reading, there's a game that I think is played among economists, which is something like, um, just take revealed, just just like, you know, take the, take your model of the world, say like, okay, assume revealed preferences, and then, and then infer your conclusions from that, and then do that like three or four times, right? <laughs> which is yeah. something like, okay, assume that, assume that if people are choosing to engage in this degeneracy, if, you know, elites are, are, are choosing to engage in this, this, this kind of inversion, this decline, uh, that it is actually what people want. And, um, you know, you, you can play this game, you know, it's true for, it's certainly, it's almost certainly true for some things, right? I think it's almost certainly true for obesity, right? Why are people obese? It's it, Food yeah. literally just tastes better, you know? Yeah, more fat, um, more sugar. 
Yeah. Um, and, and then it's less true for some other things, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, like, you know, I'm old enough to remember, I'm old enough to remember when people weren't as fat. Like, I, I get, you know, you see pictures from the 70s, 80s. It's a different country. Right. And it, very notably, you can do this in China, right? It, it is so night and day in China, um, even just compared to like 10 years ago. Um, or or in Hong Kong, uh, so 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 night and day, um, right? Um, so going back to going back to Kaliuga, um, so so like one one Straussian reading of it, I, I have this in my notes. One Straussian reading of it, this is that you 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 do have this process. I think uh, Rob Henderson had a review of a book that was talking about this. It might have been Will Storr's book, or it might have been someone. So someone else's but he he pointed out that there's this kind of cyclical process where like where where elites will adopt the fashion of people who are like two two steps down but never like one step down right where there's a kind of distancing there's there's a counter signaling from whatever class is like directly below them and and one reading of uh of the Kaliuga is that it's it is this period where the where this kind of pattern of cultural adoption uh is is just about to like cycle through right so so you have a you have you know if if in the current day kind of meritocracy and being on time and so on and so forth if this is something that is associated with you know conservatism and with um you know with republicans that this is going to be what what's adopted in the next cycle yeah yeah i mean so i do think there's a cyclical aspect to it and that's one of the things that kind of annoys me about both liberals and conservatives where, you know, the Whiggish reading is overdone and, you know, there's kind of despondency on the right and liberals are kind of like, oh, the arc of history bends towards perversion, you know, or whatever, you know? Um, but that's actually, we've had many swings even over the last three centuries, you know, kind of like yeah, yeah, exactly. the late enlightenment, like kind of like sexual liberality, then there was a, you know, Edwardian and then definitely the Victorian reaction and then kind of a slow slouch back towards, you know, gently towards liberalism until there was like a punctuated shift in the 60s uh, with the boomers, you know, all across the West. And um, I think there was been a second shift in the last like 15 years. And then I think there'll probably be a shift back. But that's if, if I had to predict. But that doesn't mean that the present isn't, you know, disturbing for people, <laughs> you know, just because. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Just because I, I, I am, uh, I'd say I'm mildly optimistic about the human race in on the scale of like a century, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the next generation is going to be, the next 20 years is going to be great. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. I don't know. I'm probably, in, in that case, I'm probably more pessimistic than you, right? This is pretty funny. Um, I, I guess like, yeah, I guess like the Straussian reading of the uh, of the Kaliuga is much less pessimistic, right? It's that you know, you know, there is a, there is a return, you know, there, there is yeah, a yeah. cycle that happens. Yeah, uh, I don't know. The literal reading is that what it keeps. It, it's some like impossibly long time frame. Sure, sure. Right? It, yeah, 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 yeah. It is a really. It's like is it tens of? Like, let's see. Let me just look it up. It's like tens of thousands. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna be here for okay, like so it's four hundred years, right? Four hundred thirty-two thousand years. Yeah, so oh my god, we're not gonna be here for four hundred thirty-two. Yeah, and it began years, right? it began five thousand one hundred five thousand years ago. 
So we okay. got we got we got a long we got four hundred like twenty six thousand four hundred twenty seven thousand years to go, which I don't believe in, but obviously, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. I don't know. Indian Indian Twitter is going to be uh, is going to be in the comments of this one for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's actually topical, right? That that's related, right? The rise of the rise of Indian Twitter. Yeah, I mean, that's it's just like a sub sub uh, sub uh, subset of uh, the Anon world, you know. It's like some it's like some uh, weird uh, loser. Uh, in his bedroom in a suburb of Bangalore, who's seventeen, is LARPing as whatever you know. Right, but don't you think don't you think that matters? Right, like Bology is very bullish on this, and like I I don't know if it's like completely played out, but like let's just say this, right? Like three three years ago, I did not encounter Indian Twitter. Um, this year, I encounter Indian Twitter semi regularly. Or, or like uh, for for the audience, uh, the the biology yeah. argument is basically, you know, all these Indians are uh, c- coming online. They all they all speak English. They're they're in the same kind of like um, cognitive sphere online as as Westerners. So so you should expect like a very big shift in terms of in terms of discourse, in terms of what you know. The the best example is Twitter, right? In terms of what's talked about in Twitter, but you know, downstream of that is uh, news. Downstream of that is uh, media, so on and so forth. Do, do, do you think that's true? Do you think that like English English speaking India is going to have uh, uh, influence sort of, on the culture in the sort of, sort of, but a lot of these people are semi English speaking. Like the real like Indians, like right wing Hindu Twitter and stuff like that. A lot of that is uh, are like you know they're basically like the sub elites. They're the Hindi speaking elites in North India in particular, um, and so they're not they're not like the classically like. So there's a part of Indian intellectual literary world, you know, let's call it the Salman Rushdie zone. Uh, that's basically <laughs> yeah. that's basically that's basically just integrated with the, with Britain and the USA, and so there's like you know, movement between these three zones. It, it it doesn't really matter. It's like it's very fluid and it's natural, and so you have to separate that part of English speaking India, which is tends to be left wing. Uh, they would say anti-national now in India, which is like anti-patriotic, but they, it, you know, it comes out of the left wing of the Congress movement. You know, Nehru himself was kind of like that. He was basically, he was basically a Makalai's child. You know, he was like, he was the, the basically he was Indian in skin color and uh, ancestry and maybe in religion, but his norms and values are basically Fabian socialist British, you know? And so those people are, are now out of power and they're being replaced by more indigenous populist sub-elite. Uh, I mean, Modi himself is not even sub-elite. His his parents were lower middle class, you know, you know, and his degree is from basically a diploma mill. He's not an intellectual, you know? Uh, so he's not part of this world in any way. And the people that are around him, a lot of them are not. A lot of them are actually not that smart, to be honest, candid. This is a problem that Hindu nationalist friends always tell me. Uh, you know, they don't have that much firepower. This is a problem with the right in general, in the U.S. as well. So Yes, many such cases. So I think, you know, that, I, I, you know what, 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 what Balaji says, like, he's been saying this for a long time, by the way. Like, I, you know, I've known him for a long time. Uh, he's been saying this for a long time. Uh, he's kind of correct, but I think it's going to be diminished by the fact that these people, they are not polished. They don't use the same idiom as Americans, so they're also, like, inexplicable. Also, there's a way, 
I mean, Twitter is different. If you talk to like these sorts of Indians in real life, especially the males, they're extremely aggressive, loquacious, uh, and uh, they will try to filibuster you. That's actually counter persuasive, I think, to a lot of Americans. It seems obnoxious and irritating. Hmm. Now, I know Americans seem like that to some Europeans, but uh, <laughs> you know, so like look at what look at what Europeans think of America. You know. Yes, they admire us and they want to be us in some ways, but they also look down on us. And so I think the same thing is going to happen with these Indians unless they figure out uh, a way to communicate that's not, you know. So, for example, like, you know, and I've told Indians this. I'm like, look, you're engaging in maximal bluster and you just seem like a buffoon. You know, like you're not going to you're not going to convince me with maximal bluster. But that's the that's the way the rhetoric and discourse happens. I have heard it's actually different in a lot of the native Indian languages, uh, like oh, people, people can be much more subtle and nuanced, but the English speaking medium in India is just blustery and buffoonish. That's the way I'll say it. Mm. Like a lot of the like, screaming and yelling and shouting on TV shows, it makes uh crossfire look very, very mild. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen some of these. Uh, do you, do you have a clip that you want to link to the audience? I think it's definitely I, wa- worth watching. I, I mean, just find anything. Like, I don't even know. Cause I can't like, I can't follow what's going on. I'm just like, what is going on? Like, why are they so angry? And, but then it turns out that's just a performance, you know? And, uh, but it's, you know, uh, right. You it's know. the future. It's like, it's like post Tucker media. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. I mean, you know what? Like, part of me, the globalist part of me is like, you know, I would be okay with like just like one big, happy, screaming, shouting match, but it would be more entertainment, <laughs> more entertainment than substance, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I think that's hard to say about, you know, that's hard not to say about most news in the West as well. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's all converging. Yeah. I do think, I don't know, there's two interpret. I I think, like, definitely English is much more of a kind of combative language than, like, Mandarin. Or, yeah, like, it it does seem, I don't know, like, I also speak, like, some French, and it does seem, like, 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 with French, it's bipolar, right, or it's, like, bimodal, um, also maybe bipolar. Um, Have you ever heard, like, anyone with a Quebec accent? They they sound much more hickish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, like there, there's like a fa- there's like a phasing if you're if you're in like Canada and you're doing like French language education. There there's like two phases. There's like initial phase where everything is like um, everything is spoken in the French equivalent of like received English and is like very clear. And is basically like training videos and like maybe some like, you know, very famous like newscasts is an example of something that you learn in like the first phase. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's like there, there's and then there's like the phase where you listen to people speak like actual French. And especially if you're in Canada, this means listening to like a lot of Quebecers and, you know, you'll have a very different uh, interpretation of French. You know, nothing wrong with Quebecers. But you know, you you will have a very different interpretation of like the aggressiveness of the French language, yeah. Um, between these two phases, well, you know, and I, I don't speak Spanish, but you know, you can tell you can tell the difference between if you listen to Argentine, Argentinian Spanish, Mexican Spanish, and you know, Spanish Spanish, like Castilian Spanish, like they're they're different. They sound different, you know. 
they they give different connotations to the English speaker. I mean, Argentinian Spanish, for example, has uh, it has some of the animation of Italian. It just does because like so many Italians in Argentina, right? So they're animated in a very Italian way. Uh, Mexican Spanish, like I don't really, I don't know what to say about it, but like you know, like Castilian Spanish, there's like a a softness to it, uh, like a gentleness to the sound. Right, right. I think like even even the more aggressive Chinese accents though they, they still seem much softer. Like, have you heard this? Like the the kind of Cantonese, uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Hunan, like the gangster accent in like Chinese mm-hmm. movies. I didn't know if you it was know Hunan. What I'm talking about. I I, well, I have a friend who was uh she was Mandarin speaker and like whenever there were Cantonese speakers around, she would insist on leaving because it would stress her out. <laughs> That's not even a joke. Even like even like Cantonese, it's like. I don't know, I, I can see it, like, relative to, relative to Mandarin, I can see it. But also, like, relative to English, it's like, the, the rhetorical tricks compared to English, you know, in terms of, like, kind of commanding and, like, bullying people, it's like, you, you, you know, I, I just look at, yeah. at, at, like, the English language, and I'm like, oh, man, th- these are, like, completely, like, different technologies. You know, th- this is like, this is like, co- co- you know, this is like, you know, Christopher Columbus on the shore of, of the New World. It's like, wow, th- there's just so much you can do with the English language in terms of kind of like beating people to death rhetorically, you know, like this, this is a tradition and like, this is a British tradition and it's been passed over to America of like completely substance free debate, right. Uh, of judge of basically like yeah. teaching you how to win a debate, like regardless of the substance. And I think that that's a tradition that's just, you know, for better or, or worse, very different in China, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. And like, you know, people say Arabic is very uh, metaphorical and indirect and that this carries over to how Arabs sometimes speak in English. Um, and I think, oh, that interesting. That, I think that that makes, that makes some sense with, you know, I mean, they seem kind of like, I don't want to say lying, but, you know, people, after the Iraq war and everything like that, obviously there was just like a lot of interaction between English speaking Arabs and people in America and, you know, people would complain, like, they're not like telling the truth. They're not being direct. And then people who were Arabists would point out that this is just a massive issue because the way elite Arabic, um, which is like, you know, kind of like, I think it's like some type of like highfalutin Cairo Arabic or whatever, the way it's written and spoken uh, tends towards metaphors and, and all sorts of illusions. And so it just seems very, sl- not slick, but uh, like not getting to the point and deceptive and hiding something. And so but this that- is kind of how I feel about English. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like, like it, it, in the case of Arabic, right? It's literally interpreting the Quran, right? That That's where it comes from, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think the Arabic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think like standard Arabic is, was originally, it's from the Quran. Although like, Quran is in classical Arabic, which is not intelligible. It's not. It's not the same as the Arabic you see, uh, like in the newspapers. And then the Arabic, right, sure, the, sure. the Arabic you see in the newspapers is totally different from the local dialect, to the point of almost unintelligibility. It's diglossic. Huh. So, the, so, okay. the, so, like, like Moroccan Arabic is almost unintelligible to Arabic in Syria, like the the Arabic on the streets. That's what I've heard. Huh. Okay. I I did not know that. Yeah. Um. Interesting. So, right. So, so this translates into a kind of indirectness. Uh, wait, like, what's a prominent example of this? Like, Nikki Haley? I don't know. Does Nikki Haley speak in the Arabic? 
Uh, no, I doubt she does. Um, no, but I think um, I think I think they, not indirect. So this is actually like a, an Iranian thing, but I think it's an Arab thing too. Okay. Um, some of the uh, extreme pronouncements of like you know like death or uh, just like you know this will be the end of you and all this stuff. Oh, I see. They're I not see. meant to be. Ta- like, nobody actually believes. Like basically, if as much death occurred, uh, co- co- consonant with their rhetoric, like nobody would be alive. And so from an <laughs> yeah. American perspective, it's like, why do you talk about death all the time if people aren't going to die? You know? And oh, it's just, I see. And, you know, so basically, Americans would freak out. And like the Arabs would be like, no, 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 we just want to make a point that this is a big deal. And Americans would be like, well, let's say it's a big deal. Don't say we're all going to die. Because <laughs> when, when Americans hear, like, this is a big deal, we're all going to die, they're like, crap, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know? I don't think in American English it is normative to actually claim that you're going to die. Uh, I think this is like a stereotype of like maybe an old Jewish grandmother, like, oh, if you marry a, if you don't marry a Jewish girl, like I'm going to die, you know? Okay, maybe that, but normally you don't say that unless you kind of like want to be really harsh and you're serious about it, I think. But it, apparently it's just not a big deal in a lot of languages. I, I, some There's some of these issues with the Indians too. Like, you, sir are you know a scoundrel it's like you're like what i just look i'm sorry that i like that i ordered eggs and you're a vegetarian you know, what I'm <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's like sometimes like sometimes some of the less assimilated indian english speakers they speak in like these grand terms and i'm just like what's going on here part of it is i have read and heard there are english books that are taught in India, like at the elementary and like secondary level, uh, that date from like basically are from the early twentieth century of Britain, and so they use terms, phrases, and just ways of speaking that seem weird and archaic. But it's because they learned English from stuff that's like a hundred, hundred twenty years ago. Okay, that, that that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, okay, wait. So, so this is. Yeah, yeah, I do want to spend more time on this. So, so like, this is, I, I see, like, almost the opposite happening with, like, Zoomer Americans, right? I think John McWhorter had a column of the, uh, related to this called, like, the softening of American language. It, it's sort of, like, the opposite. Like, you'll have, like, a very pissed off Zoomer, and they'll be like, you know, um, um, I sort of, you know, am, am very uncomfortable with, it, you know, like, so much, so much self-facing, so much self-apologizing. I'm like, okay, say it, say it, like say say it to my face, and 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 they won't. You know, it's <laughs> the amount of like passive aggressiveness in like Zoomer American culture. I think is like sort of the inverse of this. Yeah, I, so I, but I think this might tie back into the whole Anon thing. Oh, interesting. I I, I, I think a lot of it's offloaded. To other identities. Well, like they're, they're, they're like the, the, I'm talking about people. Like I'm not talking about like politics people. I'm talking no, I'm about talking, like randos. Though. Yeah, but I'm just talking about regular people. I think I, I would assume that like they behave differently on Snapchat or talk differently on Snapchat. There's there's a mm. there's a there's a huge issue with Zoomers and real life and putting themselves out there. I think what it is, a lot of it is introverted people in the past had to put themselves out there, and I don't think they have to put themselves out there now. I think that I, I do believe that the crisis of loneliness and all these other things are partly due to the fact that technology allows introverts to just never leave the house if they don't want to. Yeah, the introvert revealed preferences are like pretty pretty stark. 
Whereas in the past, you would have to leave the house. You, you, you're you forced to put yourself out there. And today, after you're 18, if you have a job and you're supporting yourself, like you can like work remote um, or just like go to the office and keep to yourself and then go home if that stretches you out. And like imagine doing that for a decade or so and then you develop these habits. So I, th- I think that's what's happening, honestly, if I had to bet. A lot of the Zoomer things are basically just the expression of certain personalities that now are allowed to kind of breathe free and maybe they shouldn't be allowed to breathe free in terms of they're actually not good for the individual in the long term, even though that they reduce mental stress in the short term. Yeah. A great way, a great way to, to close, close out on this is like, what is the forecast? What is the for, is this like a, is this like speciation, introvert speciation? Um, are we, yeah. is that what we're seeing? Well, I, I, I don't. What think are I, the what are the impacts on like the the long term you know correlation between like introversion and other uh, and other traits? Well, I mean, like, I, so I think you know if you want me to like talk about like the genetics of it, like you know, I I think in terms of reproduction, um, I think the introverts probably in this current generation will have lower marriage rates and low re- lower reproduction rates than they did in the nineteen fifties and sixties because the nineteen fifties and sixties marrying was normative and you had to put yourself out there even if it was stressful. Today, it's not normative, and you don't have to put yourself out there. Because a lot of times, you know, the way you meet your partner is in public places or in social events or through friend networks. Introverts, for example, have a lot fewer of that, fewer of those. I mean, I know people say, oh, they have, like, deeper, closer f- friendships, whatever, when they have them. I, you Fake know, news. I, they, they don't. They don't. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of that is cope. I think a lot of that uh, – and I, I know so introverts – I know a lot of introverts in my personal life uh, who – I have a lot of introverted friends because uh, I I like introverts actually. So I, I will reach out to them, but I have to reach out to them. But you know, they have all these like rationales and explanations why actually the way they are is better and good. And I'm just like if you have to explain it to someone, it's not. You know, It's like it, you don't have to explain to someone if you're good looking. Well, actually, you know, I'm good looking. Like this is why, you know? No, if you have to <laughs> if you have to enumerate it, uh, you're you're already like you already lost the game. So uh, I think that this is a major problem. Like the insult movement and like you know the supreme gentleman, uh, Elliot Rogers, like that guy. People like him, like they would not. Sorry, I have no idea who that is. Elliot Rogers is the guy who killed those women in Isla Vista and is the hero of the incels. He committed su- he like murder suicide two twenty fourteen. They call him, he called himself the Supreme Gentleman, so that's his like nickname. But he was basically like socially awkward weirdo. He didn't look that weird, but he was socially awkward. Uh, he had never kissed a girl or whatever when he committed suicide. Uh, so, but the point is, if he had lived thirty years earlier, there would have been he would have been awkward, but there would have been dances and you know other social events that he would have been pushed into, where a lot of his uh, tendencies probably would have been broken or more likely to have been broken as it is what happened over the years is he uh clearly got ensconced into message board culture that just reaffirmed that he was okay and better than everyone else basically they turned a bug into a feature and i'm not trying to say that being introverted is a bug but at certain extremes it's just obviously maladjusted and maladaptive but they're actually like we were we're the real people who are better you know and stuff like that. I mean, extroversion has its own problems, but that's a different conversation. And I think, uh, you know, extroverts will always keep themselves uh, engaged in the world because that's how they obtain 
uh, I don't know, just energy, you know? They're energized yeah. being around people. So they're still going to keep doing it. And so what you're going to see with public spaces is they're going to get more and more filled with extroverts because the introverts will opt out and like stay in their rooms. Whereas like 50 yeah, years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and there's this paradox um, where it kind of gets less habitable, right? Where, where like normie, normie culture becomes like less habitable for introverts. The, yeah. The more it... Yeah, yeah. The more, the more they, the more they, the more they opt out, the more their preferences become less and less prioritized, and the less attractive it is to them. So yes, it's a positive feedback loop. Yeah. Um, well, uh, last question of the show. This is always the last question of the show for everyone. Um, what is something, preferably something we haven't talked about? One thing that has too much order and needs more chaos, and one thing that has too much chaos and needs more order. All right, so one thing that has too much order and needs more chaos. Um, I would say the media. Um, the way... It needs more order. No, oh wait, no, it needs more chaos. Okay. Okay, it needs more chaos. Uh, I think like I think everyone's trying to do the same thing, and I think the peer group effects in the media um, are causing massive issues with distortion. Um, in terms of like what needs more order... Um, well, I mean, I don't know if we did talk about this because, like, I think we kind of like alluded to it. I think um, the way, uh, like, not just Americans, but everybody in general, but basically, our the way we live our personal life needs more order. Uh, I do think that there is a problem with choice because people are not on the same page about things. So, for example, if you know people that are dating. There's massive problems in the U.S. with dating because there's no norm of, say, do we split? Do the men pay? What does it mean when the woman wants to pay? Like, all of these things. What do you? How do you dress uh, in certain situations? Like, everything just becomes these massive reflections uh, of, like, what do we do? And there's no, no authority. There's no, like, norm, you know? And so I think uh, we do need more order and we need more norms. I don't even care what the norms are. We just need norms that people can agree on, you know, because I think right now uh, a lot of the social disorder uh, is coming out of people trying to negotiate norms ad hoc and not being happy with what's coming out because a lot of a lot of the synergy comes from uniformity, you know. I mean, so I mean, like concrete, like the, I gave the dating example, you know, obviously that's a it's hard to like figure out what it means that a woman offers to pay uh, in a society where there's not a norm of when a man pays because <laughs> there's no norm right now. Um, but right. Another, another thing would be like at a conference, um, there are conferences. So for example, an academic conference, if you dress in like a very, very formal suit, people will make fun of you. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've seen it happen, but like if you come in a t-shirt, that's probably too informal. Right. But I mean, this, I mean, this is something you have to learn as a graduate student or as a new academic. But I mean, honestly, like, why not just like people don't make things official anymore? You know, it's just something you have yeah, to like, yeah. figure out. Whereas in the past, it would be like, this is what the attire is if you're going to be presenting a plenary, you know, or if you're going to be presenting a satellite talk, 
Okay, why not make it explicit? Otherwise, like people have to ask around, uh, they have to like figure it out, and like this is just like a lot of overhead for because to assert something seems you know it, you know it's slave morality to assert something to assert a rule, yeah. you know to make it clear and evident that that's a you know that's a demonstration of power, and you don't want power. You know, you, yeah. you don't want to show. Yeah. Well, the issue is like individual self actualization is prioritized so much, but there's you shouldn't self actualize in everything. You know what I'm saying? Like in terms of like, it's just like not that important. Some of this I stuff. Mean, is, I just think it's fake in general. I, I think it's coke. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so self actualization is a synonym for for gnosis for the pursuit of gnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Sorry, yeah, I, I will say self-actualization. You know, like if you're a mystic, like if you're a very special type of person, obviously it makes sense. Problem is most people aren't mystics. Most people are just sheep, you know? So you got to like lead the sheep where they need to go. Like what's happening today is like the sheep are going all over the place because they have no shepherd. So. Indeed. Well, maybe we'll have a, we'll have a different kind of shepherd soon. <laughs> different uh -huh. kind of end times. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Thanks so much for being on the show. It is certainly the end times of this podcast. Uh, th thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem, man. That was my conversation with Razib Khan. If you liked it, as I said at the beginning, the best thing you can do is to let a friend know. You can also help the show by subscribing to the From the New World Substack, where not only will you get this episode, uh, you'll get it for free either way, but if you support us, then you'll get a post podcast reflection, where I discuss some of the main ideas and some things that I didn't get to fit in the allotted time. So far, I've done it for two episodes, and it seems like you guys have quite enjoyed it. Also, you can help the show out by leaving a five-star review on any podcast platform, and by leaving a comment and some guest suggestions. I read all of the guest suggestions, all of the comments, and in many cases, have had some of those guests on the podcast. And, of course, if you'd like to see another great episode next Monday, then please subscribe. See you then!